Hello and welcome to this episode of Greer Method, the podcast. I'm your host, Jared Greer, founder of Greer Method Complete Coaching and also an executive coach. This episode is just right on time because it's January. We're all deep in the thick of New Year's resolutions and goals and a lot of optimism is prevailing because people are turning over new leafs and trying to step into the best version of themselves. And today we have the president of Best Life Global uh, which is an organization really deemed and in, in really geared towards helping people truly live their best lives. So Brett Blair is a, uh, a an entrepreneur, a uh, businessman who has just recently sold his company and is now going full-time into this Best Life Global movement, which we'll learn a little bit more about. Uh, but this is a fun interview because we really talk about what keeps people from really achieving their potential. Brett shares his own personal story of kind of uh, awakening to this reality that his life wasn't all that he had hoped or all that he had wanted, and he really had to make some massive changes to start to live congruently to that that best vision of, of who he wanted to be. So sit back, enjoy this episode and my conversation with Brett Blair of Best Life Global. Give our listeners some some background on you. Okay, well, happy to do so. Um, so so what I do is I'm a organizational consultant and a coach. How I got to what I do is really the interesting story because that, that wasn't what I did for most of my life. And um, some things happened in my life that that opened up my passion for what I do now. That might put it in perspective if I quickly go through that. Go for so, it. Yeah. So um, I'm 58. I just had a grandchild, as you mentioned, living during North Carolina. But I grew up in Missouri in a suburb of Kansas City in a lower income family. My mom was 17 when she had me, and she had twins a year later. So my mom had three kids at 18 years old, and I, I, she's my hero because she had me. She could have chosen otherwise Yeah. and dropped out of high school and got married and all that. And um my parents from the very beginning drilled in there, all three of us that we would go to college. So that was sort of plugged into my head, but I had no idea what I would ever do. But I remember when I was little, I used to, I used to read a lot. I used to sneak away and read the encyclopedia when people weren't looking. And I, I knew that I wanted to be a teacher and I knew I wanted to do something that would help people. I was is, sure that, that. Is, is that a joke that you read the encyclopedia or did you no. really read the encyclopedia? I really read the encyclopedia. Okay. All right. This guy's either legit at, guys. He either at home or in the <laughs> library when nobody was looking. And I knew, I knew I was being kind of weird, but I, I did it anyway because I was really interested in, in learning about people and history and ideas. And I was just really pulled into that. And I knew I was going to be a writer. I used to dream about the, the novel I was going to write. And somewhere around 15, 16, 17 years old, I got confused and um, got focused on money instead of passion. And I, when it came time to choose a degree, I, I, I chose to be an industrial engineer. It, it makes me want to throw up to even say that. <laughs> and I, I did it. Nothing just, against industrial engineers. No, and for the right people, that's a phenomenal career, yeah. but it wasn't. I had no interest in math or science or any anything technical. It wasn't me at all, but it paid really well. And it was the easiest of the engineering curriculum. So I, I chose that degree. I went to the University of Missouri. 
got, I went two years of it. I hated it, but I grunted through it. And then I went to Japan for a year as an exchange student and learned Japanese language and took a year off of engineering curriculum, which was awesome. And I, it kind of, I grew up a bit, came back and finished up my degree. And right, this was when Japanese manufacturing was becoming cool. It was like the, the thing. And so um, it helped me get a job. I got a job at 3M as an engineer, which I hated. I grunted through that. I bought a new car. That was cool, but I hated my job. <laughs> I hated engineering. And um, I, um, I met a girl my senior year in college. I met a fresh, incoming freshman. And this is the reason I'm telling you the story is her dad became my coach, who's still my coach, Dr. Tom Hill. But I, I met this girl whose dad was a professor at University of Missouri. We did it for like a year and a half, and then we broke up. She broke up with me. And then a couple of years later, out of the blue, he called me and said, hey, Brett, um, I'd like to meet you for breakfast and talk about something. I thought, oh, my God, what that, you know, is what I do. <laughs> so we met, and he told me that he was getting ready to quit his job, that he had been, he was a, he was a tenured professor at the University of Missouri. He was 52, I think. He was going to resign from that job and go off and do an entrepreneurial venture to sell Remax real estate franchises in South Georgia with a, one, one of his college buddies from 30 years earlier. And um, he asked me if I would join him. And I, 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 I said, yes. So I quit my job at 3M and moved to Savannah, Georgia and spent a year trying to sell Remax real estate franchises. Let me, let me ask you, let me just back up for a minute just so we can get some context. So was you, you said that going into the engineering field, that was a, that was a money play. So money was play. this, was this shift? Was that a money play or was that a passion play? No, well, it was a little bit of both, but it was a, it was a get rich money play. Gotcha. And it was, it was tapping into the secret entrepreneur in me that was always there, but I snuffed it out. Hmm. And I hated my job. I just hated my job. So um, I spent a year trying to sell Remax real estate franchises. I moved from Savannah, Georgia to Atlanta, Georgia to Louisville, Kentucky as a, like a migrant. And I did terrible. I made $5,000 that whole year. Wow. And he did really, really well. And, and, and uh, into that, I was in Louisville, Kentucky. And I met, I met a lady who had just got divorced to two little girls. And we fell in love. And I realized if I'm going to marry this lady, I need to get a job. So I, I, I called a headhunter and I got a job with a company in Nashville, Tennessee. As an engineer, we spoke Japanese uh, for, to do cost estimating for this company. And so I moved to Nashville. She followed. We got married. That was in 1987. And 20 years went by, my friend. 20 years with that, with that company, with that career that was just this ladder up i got my mba right away because i knew i didn't like engineering work and i did all kinds of different roles and about a third of that was in human resources hmm. and hr is when i started to get a glimpse i love people i love the human side of the equation and i was completely bored and disgusted with the technical side but for 20 years i just raised this family we had our own boy who's now 28 now the two little girls i met one just had a baby. Yeah. He's 32. And, uh, but 20 years went by in a blink of me being the provider. My, my wife didn't work provider, the boy scout, the, the horse that brought the money in for the family. And I moved a lot. Career was great. And about 20 years into that, when I was, when I was 47, 
I had a midlife thing happen. I, I, I can remember it like it was yesterday. I literally got to the feeling that I was just trading my time for money. Like if I would sit in my office and just look at the clock and hear it tick and go, all, all I'm doing here is, is a transition, uh, uh, trading my time for money, nothing else. And that chewed on me to the point that I realized I had to make a change. And I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew I had to do something different. So I told my wife, I said, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to quit. And she went, all right. And she had confidence in me. So I, I quit my job. No severance, no, no nothing. I just quit. No way. 20 years, 20 years, making really good money with mortgage and boat and cars and one kid in college, one in high wow. school, one in middle school. And I, and I'm a pretty responsible guy. That was kind of irresponsible just to quit, but I did. And I, I reached out to people, including my girlfriend's dad, Dr. Hill, who I had worked with 20 years before. He had gone on to make a ton of money in Remax over like the next 10 years. Then he sold it all. And he, as he says now, with time and money, he, he had some freedom. He started doing research on entrepreneurs and he started coaching entrepreneurs. Hmm. So I reached out to him and said, hey, Tom, I just quit my job and I, I'd like your help to help me think through what I should do now, what job I should get. And he said, well, hey, send me an email. Tell me what you are interested in, what you're not interested in. We'll talk through that. So I did that. And then we talked. And he goes, well, hey, have you ever considered owning your own business? Now I paused and I go, well, not, not since those REMAX years or since high school. He goes, well, if you're ever going to, now's the time to, to do it. That question opened up my brain to who I really was. And it, I'm like, hell yeah. But then the question, what do I do? I had no idea what to go do. And ended up, I ended up starting a recruiting company, which I sold last week. But I started an executive recruiting company in the suburbs of Detroit, where I was living then. And it was a franchise, so I didn't have to like invent it. But I had, I had never really sold anything other than that year in Remax. I had never owned my own business. But I had confidence I could do it. So I I did this. I started this recruiting company and it seemed logical because I, I loved HR. I had a pretty big network of people I knew and I started recruiting immediately into the industry that I had just left, which was automotive, electronic, electrical products. I called Tom or, you know, Tom, I let Tom know I'm doing that and my business took off. It did really, really well, but I, I felt awkward moving from all the corporate structure to no structure from meetings and memos and bosses and stuff to every day was entirely mine to create. And so Tom, I was telling Tom about that. He goes, Hey, you might need a coach. I said, what's that? He goes, you know, somebody could help you. He goes, I'm coaching people. Maybe I could coach you. I said, all right, let's try it. So he's coached me now for 11 years. Wow. So I hired Tom Hill to help me make some sense out of all the freedom I had in my, my work life. But what he did was retool my my life my my life. He he taught me a philosophy for how to live that I had never ever done before. I nobody had ever talked to me about about priorities around goals, about balance, about any of that. So yeah. I started to literally organize my life around some things he was teaching me, and my life really took off. So pause, pause right there because. Yes. Uh, and I can, I can already tell you, we're going to have to have you on again, because I feel like we're just going to get into so much stuff here. But take us back to when you're in your office, you said you're listening to the clock tick and you're, and you're seeing 
that the, you know, you're trading time for money. You're telling me you're 47 years old. And, you know, I, as a coach myself, it, for some reason, maybe you've seen this too, 44 on seems to be this time where there's a lot of self-reflection and a lot of that kind of like, this is not what I expected my life to be. This is not what I had hoped or what I'd wanted. So talk to us about some of the emotions behind that. Like, what were you feeling? Yeah, you're trading time for money, but you'd already done it for 20 years. You were making good money. So what were you feeling in that moment that just made you say, I got to get out of this and I actually don't have anything else lined up. I'm just going to go. Yeah. I think part of it was my, my youngest child was approaching graduation from high school. This happens all the time, by the way. This is why divorce is pretty predominant in 17, 18, 19 years of marriage is that that final kid leaves the house. I said, I think part of me was thinking, what am I going to do after I'm no longer having to be a father? And my son was, he had some challenges in school. So I was really actively fathering him. So I think part of it was, I, I want to have this new freedom. What am I going to do with it? And, and the reality was, I hate my job. I, don't, I didn't know I hated it, but I felt no fulfillment with it. And it wasn't like I, had a, I was logically thinking through it. It just hit me. And this is what scares me. I could easily still be in that same career today had not something triggered in my head that said, hey, wake up. So I, was, I had been lying to myself for a long time that that everything was good, but and I can tell by your face right now it wasn't good. It was. I, I think I got to the point that money just wasn't the thing anymore. I had I had the I had the I had the toys, but I I had no passion. And underneath it was a guy who loved to help people. Mm. And actually, I, I uh, have you ever read the Prayer of Jabez? I have not read that. It's a little bitty book about a little verse in the Bible, and and it said it, you pray to God that you ask God to bless you. Through God blessing you, you can bless other people. You ask God to expand your territory so you can help more people. You ask God to lift you up and, and help you do things you've never done before, and you ask God to to keep you from evil, from sin. And so I would say that prayer every morning as I walk to our mailbox in the back, and I realize. I'm praying to expand my territory. And I go to a job where I sit in an office, look at a computer all day. And even though I'm making a lot of money and the more my career advanced, the more it was stock options that brought the money and less my salary. Yeah. And some years that stock option number was huge. And some years it was zero. So it's like, just go to Vegas. You know I mean? What's the difference? And so I, I began, I began to feel really hypocritical to what I was praying for. And, and I felt, kind of fraudulent. Yeah. I can make all this money or make no money. And, and I'm really, my job was not that important in the big scheme of the big company. We were a small division of Alcoa. So our company was like a billion dollars within a $30 billion enterprise. So we, we could do really poorly in a stock would triple or yeah. we could do great in a stock would tank. So I just felt like on a, a guy on a boat with no rudder, you, trading time for money. Do you, and I'm going to ask this question and I'm just going to uh, preface it with, you don't have to answer it, but I'm curious because, you know, you, you said you're 47, you said your, your son is leaving the house and it sounds like about that time maybe was where the marriage was maybe exposed for what it was. And it, it, is it, was it something where, and I'll explain why I'm asking this, but was it something where you're 
your energy outside of your job was focused on your son, that when that was removed, you were kind of left with the stark reality that, hey, my marriage isn't what I wanted it to be. My job isn't creating that fulfillment. Was it a little bit of that? Yeah, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was. Although I'm not, I, that's how it feels to me. And actually the, the marriage piece at the point I left my job felt great. I, I didn't know I was in a, in a struggling marriage. What, 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 what exposed a marriage challenge was I started for the first time in my life, work on my life. Mm through coaching. I started to literally think about what are my priorities, spiritual, my health, my relationships, my emotions, my, my uh, intellect, my money. And how am I doing on those things? How am I balanced or not? And what do I do to grow? And I literally made a spreadsheet in red, yellow, green, all that. And, and on a Friday night, I'm looking at my spreadsheet and my wife caught me looking at a spreadsheet <laughs> on my life. Actually, as she walked by, I minimized it. And then she went on, she came by, I, mean, my, I kept minimizing my screen. She was like, what are you doing? There's the worst things phone. you could be hiding from your spouse, folks. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was hiding my goals. And I opened them up. She said, what, what is that? I said, these are my goals. What do you mean your goals? I said, these are my goals. This is my spiritual goal and my relationship goal. She goes, on a Friday night, you're such a nerd. And she walked off. Hmm. That, even though she was being funny, it wasn't funny. I felt uh, a sword in my heart. And I sat there going, man, my, my wife is not supporting my, my dreams. So we ultimately got divorced, which was a really hard, sad journey. In the meantime, I'm, I'm having a monthly coaching call with Tom Hill, working on my life. And this was in 2008, 2009, that the Detroit economy went into the toilet. Hmm. That business got really, really hard. It got really bad. I, I, I cashed in my life insurance policy to make payroll got divorced at lifetime alimony it, it got really 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 dark and in the depth of all that darkness I get a phone call this is 2010 I'm divorced 49 year old guy in Michigan and as my mother called me who lives in in Florida in tears and she shared with me she said honey I, I have bad news I said what's that mom she goes I, I found out I have a lung disease and my doctor's recommending I get a lung transplant. And they're suggesting I go to Duke Hospital in North Carolina for that. But would, would you help me? I said, of course I'll help you. She goes, well, we need to go and visit. So I flew to North Carolina, spent a week with my mom, find out that she's really not a candidate because she's too old and too heavy. But long story short, Duke accepted her as a patient, but only if, they'd a, if she had a family member live with her 24-7 within 30 minutes of the Duke Hospital. So I moved to Durham, North Carolina with my mom in 2010. Wow. July, in July 30, 2010, she had a double lung transplant. She, it's now eight and a half years later and she's basically, her, her lungs are perfectly healthy. The rest of her body's wow. struggling with it. Sure, good for her. And in the midst of all that darkness, I, because I'm a recruiter and I'm divorced, I moved my eHarmony account from Detroit, Michigan to Durham, North Carolina, and I met a lady who I'm now married to. We just had our seventh wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you. Awesome, awesome lady who loves my crazy ideas. <laughs> and um, I, I, never, I didn't go back to Michigan. I, I, I ran that business remotely from Durham. 
And that business grew when I left. That's a leadership principle. Get out of the way. Yeah, right. <laughs> so my team could do their thing. I, I, and I, I became a much better salesperson, much better business BD guy, because I would fly there, rent a car and stay in a hotel and work all day, calling on clients instead of sitting in my office having meetings with my staff. So yeah. anyway, that worked. my business took off. But the whole time I'm being coached once a month by Dr. Tom Hill through all these ups and downs. And it, as I was, I would tell people, I can see it in their eyes that they're in a job they hate. They feel stuck and they're hidden at midlife thing. And I want to shake them and say, dude, you don't have to live that way. You don't have to live that way. If, if you have a passion for something, go do it. And if you need to learn, learn something, go learn it. And, and today's economy is so diverse, you can make a living doing what you love. Don't trade your time for money. And I realized, well, I don't love my recruiting company. I never loved yeah. it. It's okay. Mm -hmm. It's a lot better than that job I had. I love coaching. So about five years ago, I said, quit being a hypocrite, Brett. <laughs> Get about living what you love. And so that, that's what uh, changed my trajectory into my third career, which is consulting and coaching. And then I've been going through different certifications. I'm getting my PhD in psychology right now. So that table behind me, this is, I'm, a, I'm working on my dissertation right now. Please. So piles of paper. But, but my, my core is live a life around your passions and focus on your priorities, be honest about them, work towards relative balance, and commit yourself to lifetime growth. Not till you're 67 and retire and then die, but forever right. until you die. And I, I'll, I love, love, love that philosophy. Um, so I wrote a book called From Autopilot to Authentic that tells this entire story. I published it three years ago that Dr. Hill, who's still my coach, suggests everybody has a book in them. So I finally did my book, but I recommend to any of your listeners write a book. But that's my story and I want to continue doing it. No, I, I love it. And there's so much good stuff there. I want to go back to, you know, you said a minute ago, you see in people's eyes that, you know, they're, they're, they're they're not happy in their jobs, you know, they're, you just want to shake them. Right. So how, how, if you could go back, how would you snap yourself out of that? Like what should you have seen that you didn't or what should you have thought or what question should you have asked when you were in that situation to snap you out of it and help you course correct? I, 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 back in when I was in college or high school, choosing a career, I, I should have honored what I knew my passions were more and, and had the courage to say, I don't care if teachers make a lot less money than engineers. I want to be a teacher or I'm going to be the best teacher ever and, and find a way to, to or, or write that book on the side and be a best-selling novelist and be a teacher. So I got, I got a little bit fearful, I think, of or confused around making money a bigger thing than it really yeah. should have been. Um, and then in, in, as a, an adult and being married, I, I, I actually, I wrote a blog post on this. I said the Boy Scouts are evil. And I, I mean that jokingly. I'm an Eagle <laughs> Scout, but the, 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 uh, the Scout law doesn't say be inspirational, be, be, be a leader. It's about trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, yeah. obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brilliant. It's about being a good person. Well, that's awesome. I took it literally. I, I was a follower in the entire marriage. I was a follower. Mm. And I never became a leader until mid-40s of my own life. 
So what could I have done differently? I think honor the fact that I knew I, I knew, I, I knew I wanted to help people as my core being and why in the world would I choose to be an engineer if I yeah. want to be a people helper? Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think that's a common challenge for people, especially our, our younger generations that are getting out of college and they're, they're thinking, Hey, I got to, and maybe even more so these days than when you and I were in college, but you know, okay, I got to make enough money. I've got to be able to compete with everything I see on social media. And so I need to, you know, be making all this money and traveling the world. And so I think there is some of that. Okay. What, what education do I need to go chase so that I can make that money? But we hear yeah. time and time again, people that spend years in a, in a place, in a job, in, in, in relationships in some cases, that they don't love, but they yeah. just do it because it's there because it's, it's present. Yeah. No, and I, I think there's all kinds of other bad, at least in me, a lot of other bad think, thinking that took happened. I was way too concerned with what other people thought of me. Yeah. Way too concerned with that. I, I was, uh, I was too fearful. I was way afraid to, to do something risky or new. So I, I, I'm constantly working on my thinking. Yeah. Even now, I, the rest of my life, I will. It's it's the fourth priority for me is my 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 thinking. And if we can free ourselves up of being concerned with what other people think, and if we can become more present and less fearful, less anxious, less regretful, and just go do our thing, we could we can perform miracles. But yeah. we get we get all cluttered up with bad thinking. Yeah, I think. I mean, and again, I'm sure you probably see it as well. I think probably the number one thing as a coach is that people see those limitations, right? They're, they're limited by their thinking and they internalize that as a capability problem versus a, you know, a, an issue of, well, I'm, I'm more comparing myself to other people. So I think less of myself versus, you know, Hey, you can actually do this if you just stick with it. I mean, that's the whole, the whole methodology behind Greer method is we achieve consistency we build technique and skill and we manage our intensity. And the number one compare or the number one problem or threat to that is comparison. And I'll give you just a perfect example that happened to me yesterday. I go to the gym, I work out at the YMCA pretty, pretty regularly. And I go in and I set up the deadlift bar, right? Which is about a 45 pound bar. I put on a couple plates on the side, 25 pound plates, not 45 pound plates. Cause I'm a little guy. And so I, I load it up, right? And all of a sudden, a guy comes in, and for whatever reason, like three feet from me, he sets up his own deadlift bar. He just piles weight on. I mean, just to put it into perspective, my total was about 150 pounds, not even my body weight. His total was like 320 or 325 or something like that. <laughs> so, of course, what's the natural reaction? Either I want to put more weight on, which <laughs> very well may push me to injury, you know, or, right. or that's doing more than I probably should at the moment. Or I really had this thought, maybe I'm going to go to another play, part in the gym and just wait till this guy's done. Yeah. Of course, catching those weight, those, those, you know, improper patterns of thinking, recognizing, Hey, this guy is on a different journey that I'm on and who right. knows how long he's doing it or how long he's been doing it or what his objectives are. I just stayed the course. But how often do you see that in the lives of your clients or, you know, where it's like, 
they're looking around and they're seeing the person that does everything so well or they've just got this craft really, really down really well and they're playing that comparison that then they, they back off, they pull back or they push too hard right. and they, they push themselves into overwhelm or burnout. And so uh, I think you're totally right. That comparison is just a, it, it's a deal breaker, honestly. It, it just cripples people. It's a killer. Another thing I've, I've gotten really good at in my own life, and I really encourage my clients to do it, is get a crystal clear vision of your life in the future. And have that, have that be the magnet that pulls you in that direction and, and give you the discipline to do the hard things, like go to the gym every day or, yeah. or, or work on yourself. And I, I know so many people have no vision at all of their future. They're just getting through the day. And I joke around. I actually have a really good memory of the future. I have a terrible memory of the past because I just choose to put my mind towards where I'm going. But I, I've got a very clear idea. I know I'm not, I'm not totally in charge of it, but I have a, I have a big influence on it. Yep. I call yep. it put the odds in my favor. Yep. Who I hang out with, what, what I let in my brain, what, what I watch on, I don't watch TV, but what I watch, what I read, who I'm with, what I eat, those things are all very intentional to put the odds in my favor that when I'm 115, it's yeah. been good. <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting because when I, so kind of like you, my background was business first, right? I came from management consulting. I had, I held several senior leadership positions where I was managing people in different geographies. And then I got kind of introduced to this, this personal development world and that, that whole industry. And we, we talked about that a little bit. Right. And what, what's interesting is the cliche word is intentional. People, they're always in the personal development, they're saying intentional. And I, I heard it so much when I first got into it. I was like, this is ridiculous. Stop saying that word. But as I continued to be around the industry and work with people in a variety of different settings, people are not intentional. They just don't think through, okay, I'm here at work. What do I actually want to achieve here? Or, hey, I'm home with my family. What do I actually want to accomplish when I'm sitting here across the table from them? Do I want to sit there and scroll on my phone while I'm eating? And just that lack of intentionality. So I totally flipped. I was like, don't say that word to me at all. And then I was like, okay, yeah, you have to be intentional. We have to be thoughtful about what we're doing. Otherwise, we find ourselves 47 looking around being like, what have I done? What yeah. have I done? And you can't get those years back. No, no. And I, I argue, I suggest also that cultural, if you just go from 20 to 47 without intention and let culture happen to you, you're going to be 20 or 30 pounds overweight. And, 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 and with a bunch of bad habits and pretty dissatisfied with your life and maybe you become a victim of stuff. And I mean, culture is so toxic that you, I think you've got to have a plan, an intentional plan to, mm -hmm. to overcome it. So I draw a picture and as we go into the future, you and I are both going to have crap happen to us and we've, we've already had crap happen and it's going to happen again. So we, we have an option. We can become resilient and grow. They call it post-traumatic growth. Or we can cave in and not, or, or something in between. 
but we have a choice. How are we going to handle the future knowing it's going to be bumpy? I want to be, I want to be resilient. I want to go through every challenge and grow and get stronger. And, and I try to encourage my coaching clients around that. That's why I'm a huge fan of positive psychology, that whole science. It's not, it's, it's the science now. And there, and it's, it's growing for sure. Oh my gosh. It's, and it's so full of practical applications to help an individual retool their life in such a way that they'll be more likely to be resilient into the future. Yeah. But this notion of not having troubles is not available. We're going to have troubles. Yep. It's how we, it's how we get through it. <laughs> and the more we focus on social media, the more troubles we're going to have. Oh my that, gosh. That's a, that's a guarantee. Oh it's, my gosh. So, it, it's, go so back to my point about culture. If we let social media or instant gratification and food and entertainment and sex and alcohol, all those things, you just let it happen to you. You're lucky if you 20 years later are at the same level, let alone yeah. growing. So I think we have to like have countercultural intentions around old fashioned things like reading and exercise and eating good food and being great with your family and, you know, the things you just mentioned, they have to be, um, you have to be unusually going after those things, I believe, to, to win in this culture war of yeah. bombardment with bad things. I totally agree. I think, uh, so one of my favorite quotes, every time I quote this, I expect people to like fall off their chairs and be shocked and nobody ever is, but I'm going to say it anyways. So a couple of years ago, they were interviewing the CEO of Netflix. Okay. And they Agent. said, hey, who is your competition? Like, who is your competition? And the CEO thought about it for a second. And then he said, sleep. Sleep is our competition. Wow. And this, this is the CEO of a company. So when you talk about being intentional against, against culture, that's what we're talking about. These, these companies are designed to take your attention, take your intention, and take, every, like, take your time, your energy. And they're doing it. And when, when you have a, a CEO of a company saying, hey, we're really not competing against other streaming services, right. we're competing against the human need to sleep, hey, we've got a problem. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, problem. that's a really good point. <laughs> so let's talk about, it's January, obviously a lot of people are trying to turn over new Leafs. Uh, I feel like in this space, you know, coaches either love January and New Year's resolutions or they just totally hate it? Where do you fall and why? Um, I like it. I, you know, I, I like, I like having a framework for readjusting aspirations, whether it's goals or whatnot. Yeah. One thing Dr. Tom Hills taught me is to plan my life in 18 month increments. Now you can do that. You could start May 15th on that. I mean, the, the January 1st is just an arbitrary date, right? But, yep. but we all line up around it. So I like it. I like, I like January a lot for myself and for my clients because it's kind of a renewal period. I'm not a big fan of resolutions because most people don't stick with them. But it is a good time to uh, ponder, ponder your priorities. And usually people have some downtime between Christmas and New Year's to really reflect on, where life is right now for them yeah. and what's important and, and what's going really well and what's not going so well and what can I do in the coming year or coming 18 months to, to grow and to improve upon those areas that aren't going so well. 
and write them down. There's been all kinds of research that says those are people who write down their goals outperform those who don't. Yep. When I read that, I did it way, way early in my recruiting career. I thought, well, I need all the help I can get. So if that's going to help me, I'm going to do it. <laughs> so I've been a written goal setter for like 12 years now. Wow. Yeah, I, I still write them down. Right. And I, I, I orient them around my priorities. I mentioned earlier, my, my highest priority is spiritual. So I, especially as I get older, I'm noticing that's actually becoming a bigger part of my thinking. And I think it's because of mortality motivation. I'm going to, sure. I'm closer to you to a natural <laughs> death. So, <laughs> um, so I, I, I literally write down what are my goals in a spiritual realm? And then my next highest priority is my physical health. Some people make fun of me for that. They're like, you mean your health is more important than your kids? Yeah. Amen. Your health Amen. is more important than your marriage. Well, if I have to, I have to do that. Yes. And my answer is, if I become unhealthy, I become a burden to my wife yeah. and my kids and to my and to society. So yes, my health is an, more important than other things. So I say, all right, health is important. What are you going to do about it? Well, I have signed up for a half marathon. Okay, got a half marathon. What are you going to do about it? I got to train. So <laughs> you know, speaking your your language there, but it's on here. It's half marathon. So anyway, spirituality, health, relationships, emotional professional, financial. Those are my, my top six areas. And I believe if I'm doing really well on the spiritual, physical, relational, emotional, and professional aspects that the money will follow. That's my philosophy. And then, and, and it's proving true. Yeah. So, um, I, I do this in my own life and I encourage it in my clients' lives. Um, some people have a, a allergic reaction to goal setting and Okay, I respect that, but yeah, well, I mean, you're you're totally right. I mean, the research supports it. I think Harvard did a study that said you have forty one percent higher chance of achieving your goal if you just simply write it down. Absolutely. Just that act of writing it down. Um, Absolutely. And then, you know, ninety two percent of people don't actually complete their New Year's resolutions, and so you know, it's a matter of people have to have a structure in place, a strategy, and that that kind of rung true when you were talking before about going from corporate world into now you had all this freedom and, and it's those structures. We often looked to a third party to create those structures for us, college, yep. a job, you know, our, our, our home or church even. Yep. Whereas if you really want to watch yourself take off, start to establish your own structure, create Absolutely. your own routine um, around the things that are most important. And that was, you know, again, uh, when we moved from Washington, D.C., a big focus of mine was to maintain the quality of life in my home because I was leaving a good career. I was leaving a good career trajectory and good financial you know, security, um, but that wasn't what was most important. So I said, even as I start my own business and start doing my own things, I'm building it around these staples of time with my family, time with my wife, you know, time with my kids. And that's been difficult at times. There's a lot of uh, pull for time and attention. Um, but as I've stuck to it, everything else has found its place. Yeah. Uh, and then you build up from, from there. And I think in many cases, people think, when I, when I reach this level of my career, or when I reach this point, or when I make this much money, or when I've achieved this, then I will take care of my health. Then I will... Uh, work on myself. I'll start writing goals, what what have you. So what are your best 
tips or advice to help people achieve their goals? Let's say that I'm somebody I've been just failing miserably for years and years and now I'm getting to that point. I'm seeing 44 coming up and I'm starting to say, okay, I got to change. Here's some goals. What, what are the things that help people succeed as it relates to their resolutions? You've already mentioned vision, so totally agree yeah. with that. No, well, yeah, yeah. Vision, kind of get your compass set. Um, I don't want this to be self-serving, but I wouldn't be here without Tom Hill having been my mentor, coach, helper guy. He's 82, yeah. by the way, and he's, oh, still, wow. he's still coaching me. So I don't know if maybe other people can do it on their own, but to have somebody help be in your corner to help you remain accountable to your goals or to your ideas is very, 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 very important and very, very helpful. Yeah. It's so easy to get, um, have other things become priorities, especially if you're, you've got a big full-time job and you're working 50, 60 hours a week. Last thing you want to do is, come home from that and, and have some more structure to work through. Yep. Right. So to have help is important. Um, I'm trying to answer your question. I'm not, I'm, I, while you're thinking about it, I'm just going to share a little anecdotal, um, maybe analogy or metaphor. I'm not sure which it is, uh, because that, I think that's a powerful concept. The fact that we don't do it alone. And nobody does. And as I've thought about that very topic, and you're not being self-serving, you're a coach, I'm a coach, we, we make a living off of helping people achieve, right? I have a coach. Yeah, exactly. So it, it's, I often think about all of those movies where they're about to go launch into space, right? And they go and they strap in and they're all, you know, they're, they're leaned backwards and the, the engines are just rumbling and it's just, it starts moving up and the, the, the structure's breaking away. And then there's this moment where when they get out of the atmosphere, whatever it is, and there's probably a specific scientific term for it, but it's just quiet. And there's nothing. And I think about that as, you know, we start from a very young age, we, we go to school and we have teachers teaching us, pushing us, keeping us, we have parents that are involved and accountable. And then that moves on through high school and things might get a little more intense with, you know, our, our sports play or teams and all of our extracurricular activities. Then we go to college and now we're just trying to navigate all how many credits we take and work at the same time. And then we leave college and it's like that. Who's there? Who's yeah. there to, to push and help and guide and provide that structure. And so I, I don't see anything wrong with, in fact, it's, it's necessary. You have to have people who have, who have been to where you're going who can point the way. Now, does that mean you have to hire a coach? No, that does, that's not what it means. It means that you've got to know where to go to be able to get information that you need, and you will accelerate faster if you do. And if you can get somebody knowledgeable that's willing and able to give you of their time for free, go do it. Why not? But if you don't, then it's worth the investment because even as capable as you are, because people are capable, uh, you'll go faster having yeah. that level of accountability. Yeah. Um, and, and I know that, you know, my, I trained for a marathon the past two years. I had ran 10 marathons before that. 
um, never with a coach. And I hired a coach. And guess what? Two years in a row, I've beat my, my best time. Why? Because there's that structure. There's that level of accountability. There's that, that self-conviction that, oh, I've got somebody else looking at my runs. I've got somebody else you know, wondering if I did my long run on Saturday when it was kind of rainy and a little bit cold and I didn't really want to go do it. And so that gives that little bit of spark when you're not feeling it. So yeah, totally. I, I, I bet you trained better and the run was easier, I guess. You're exactly right. Yep. You're exactly right. My, my run last year, this year, we changed things up and there were some, t- some tweaks that I think made an impact, but my run last year, I mean, dare I say a marathon can never be easy but it was easy. Legitimately, it was mile 23 when I was like, okay, this is really good. Like mentally, I started dealing with some stuff at mile 23. This year, it happened to like mile two, but that was another story. We also had a baby, you know, uh, (laughs) two weeks before. Yeah, no, that's awesome. You know, um, your your point about school and high school and college and the job, all that, or all the the education years, and then you get a job. And I like your analogy of you're in the rocket ship and it's just quiet I, I think getting into a younger person's head that life that's not life just getting to a job and then you quit growing but realize that your entire life is an opportunity to grow yep not only it not in any one dimension but you continue to grow and then think about I do this with my clients with myself imagine your own funeral and, and when, if you die and people are hovering you're hovering over your own funeral listen to what people say about you you are you happy with what you're hearing? Hey, you and I both want our kids to say, "My dad was awesome," or you know, he yeah. was. And you want your friends to say, "Man, he was the happiest guy," or whatever you want. You don't. They're not going to say how much money you made. Yeah, right. You know, so kind of thinking with the end in mind. How do you get a young person to break out of the cultural norms and think like that? I'm not sure. I'm trying harder with my son, who's 28, as I've grown. Sure. But, I think this whole notion of work hard, work through school, get a job, work hard, retire is a bad, a bad recipe. And we all know people that do that and then they die. Yeah. Actually my dissertation for my PhD is on, on how men handle layoff Mm. and the impact that shame has on their recovery. But that's not dramatically different than a, a corporate guy or girl who retires after 67 years at 67 and they have nothing to live for and they die. So I, I don't want that to be me or no, you. That's a sobering thought. <laughs> no, and, and it doesn't, ha- and we can actually, there's a great book called halftime by Bob Buford. I don't know if you read this book mm-hmm. or not, but it says most people live a life. It's like a bell curve. You're born kid, you're a kid, you go to school, you get a career, you get to the top of your career, you retire. And then you, you ramp down. Some people, it's bam. Yeah. <laughs> but this guy Bob Buford says suggests that in your early forties, late thirties, early fifties, you should design the second half of your life, like literally plan it out. So your life is two bell curves, mm. and the second half of your life is second half after halftime is one where you've intentionally planned your retirement years around very active, very meaningful pursuit of something and people who do that have far more are happier and healthier and much more well-being than those who don't yeah so and and this whole notion of of the bell curve is just post-world war ii but before world war ii people didn't work in a job 
for 40 years and then retire. They, they worked forever. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? <laughs> so in the history of mankind, it's been a really small window of time where we have this crazy notion that, that our parents grew up with. Yeah. And certainly there's lots of research that talks about the importance of work on, on the psyche, right? On the well-being. Yeah. Like nobody really enjoy. I mean, maybe there's some who really enjoy work. just going from a, a career to I'm going to sit on the couch and do nothing. But um, I don't, I don't believe that really exists. I think at the end of the day, people look in the mirror and they look at themselves in the eye and they want more for themselves. They may not know how to get it. They may settle for for not achieving it because they don't feel like they're capable of it but man i just don't believe that people look themselves in the eye and say i'm good being mediocre yeah you know yeah. i don't i don't believe that at all i don't either hey Lon, i want to give you a better answer to your question about how to how do you approach it's january you got a year ahead of you yeah how do you best organize yourself around that here's what i do with myself and my clients i say okay what are your top six to eight priorities in your life Write those down. Now, sometimes you're like, I don't know. I, I, where do I start? And we, I say, well, here are mine, if that helps, whatever. Write those down. Okay, now you rate yourself on a 1 to 10. 10 being perfect. I don't believe anybody is a 10, but mm. and then 1 being terrible. Rate yourself. And then we draw the circle and connect the dots and, and pretend your life is a wheel. And if you've got flat spots, those are areas that you're weak relative to the other areas in your life. Set goals. Set smart goals to, to grow in those areas over the next 90 days. Yeah. And then let's look at 18 months on each of your areas and think about one or two or three or four things that you can do that you can improve your life. Yeah. That, that alone is a curriculum for life design that somebody does that and they do the things they planned a year and a half later, their lives are better. Yeah. Their and, lives are better. And then you do it again. Yeah, and again and again and again and again because your wheel's never going to be perfectly round. <laughs> no, of course not. And, and the, every now and then something from the outside will whack you. You know, yep. your wife will have an affair with your best friend or, or you'll, your business will go under or you'll have cancer. Stuff happens. Yep. Just plan on that. Be resilient. Get through it. Make the best of what you have. And, and the things you have control over, like what you put in your mouth and what you read and what you listen to, <laughs> about, I love this, personal discipline leads to personal freedom. Love that. Jim Rohn says that. I love that. Personal discipline leads to personal freedom. If you have the discipline not to drive drunk, you have the freedom not to go to jail or kill somebody. Personal discipline to eat healthy, you have the freedom to have a probably a healthier body. It goes on and on and on. So just retooling your, yourself around that. I, I'm a big believer in having fun, by the way. I'm, I'm not a workaholic. I've you a, don't seem like a boring guy to me at all. So. No, and I, one of the reasons I'm such a disciplined worker is I want to carve out time to have a lot of fun. Yeah. And so some people think, I don't want your life. It's all work. No, it's not. My life is not all work. Yep. You <laughs> so, know, my, my brother has an analogy that he uses um, to talk about finances and he uses the example of an hourglass and I'll probably butcher it, but he basically says that, you know, um, when you, when, when you live big at the bottom, then that, that goes up to a narrow entrance, right? And life is constrained, but when you live narrowly, then your life opens up and you've got a lot more freedom. 
And it's interesting to think about, you know, one of the things that, and you probably experience it too, but when I'm helping somebody to, to learn how to prioritize and organize their time, I mean, I'm relentlessly in pushing some tracking mechanism. How do you know where you're supposed to be, when you're supposed to be, what you're going to do? And constantly people feel like that can be cumbersome, that they, now they're feeling so constrained. When in reality, it's the structure, that structure that allows for that freedom to give way to the freedom. So you can say, hey, you know what? On Friday, I'm taking three hours and we're just going to go hike in the mountains. I'm going to do it. We're going to, and it's on a schedule. It's part of the plan. It's intentional versus not intentional. And so people push against that when in reality, that is the pathway to freedom. Absolutely. The more thoughtful you are about things, the more you're going to be able to do. Absolutely. And I, when you were talking earlier about when you moved here from Washington, D.C., and you made the priority of spending time with your kids and your wife and all that, I was thinking, and I bet you when you were working, you were twice or three times more productive. Oh, yeah, for sure. You were intentional about, all right, I'm going to do this for this period of time, and then I'm going to have this time with them. That kind of segmenting your, your life creates productivity. Yep. And then you get far more done than you used to do, or I used to do, when I had all day. <laughs> yeah, because let's be honest. The people who say that they're busy, they're not busy. They're distracted. And so they sit at work for eight hours thinking about what they want to do on the weekend or what they ha haven't done at home. And then they go home and they think about what they didn't do at work and what they should have done and how bad they want to go exercise. And then they go try to exercise and they're thinking about work and home and my wife that's mad or whatever else. When in reality, it's, man, if you actually become structured, you create that structure for yourself, you sit down to do what you want to do and you focus on what you're doing. Yeah. And then you focus on those other things. When it's time to focus on those other things, stress levels are like, yeah. that's how we manage intensity. We make sure we just keep track of your commitments that you're committed to. Yeah. We make sure that you're leading the things that you're doing every day already. You're just doing them in a, in a quality way versus just going through the motions and being distracted and thinking of something else. So, so I'm, yeah, I'm writing okay. a book right now. I'm writing a book right now. The title is busy is bad. <laughs> it, Amen. The logo is really funny. It's this guy who's all wigged out, but it's exactly what it's two things. I have two definitions for busy. One is living a life. That's not the right life for you. Like my, the industrial engineer in me, that was, that wasn't the right life. So that was a busy, but then the rest of it's the, the distracted, multitasking, unfocused, dealing with electronic life we live in. That's another version of busy. So I have both of those in my book. But um, I, what I try to, what on my PhD program, which is supposed to take 20 to 30 hours a week of work, I don't have that much. I get it done in about five because I am hyper, I get, I, I get into a different place when I do that and it's flow. I yeah. can make it. I can make flow happen where there's nothing else going on in my world but this paper I'm writing or this research I'm doing. And then I get, I usually have to go to a coffee shop to do this, but I get it done, turn it in, get a good grade, check the box. And, uh huh. Cause I've mastered the art of getting myself into hyper flow mode. And that's the discipline, right? So people that are listening and they're like, ah, I'm going to do that. Don't expect it to be that easy. No, it took you years. You sit down, start with 10 minutes. <laughs> Try and be just hyper-focused for 10 minutes and get and, and you'll see it happen over time. But I think that's that, that comparison threat, right? Oh, man, listen to this guy. Okay, that's going to be me. 
I go to the coffee shop tomorrow. I work on my project for an hour. I'm pulling my hair out. <laughs> and now I'm thinking, well, that guy's a hack. <laughs> but it no, is it took a slow, small steps. Absolutely. Intentionality every day across time that's actually going to lead to that, that performance. I mean, it's, Absolutely. It, it, is, it is science. It works. We just have to stick to it. We've got to have that discipline. What was the Jim Rohn uh, quote you said again? Discipline? Personal discipline leads to personal freedom. Man, that should be a bumper sticker on everybody's car. Yeah, personal discipline leads to personal freedom. This has been awesome. Hey, I really appreciate the time, Brett. It's been fantastic talking. We'll definitely have to have you on again. Where can people connect with you? Uh, we didn't even really get a ton into uh, your Best Life Global, but yeah. we, we will oh. next time for sure. But where can people connect with you? Yeah, so I, my company is Best Life Global. So the, the domain is bestlifeglobal.com. Uh, my email address is bblair at bestlifeglobal.com. Perfect. Um, my book is called From Autopilot to Authentic. It's on Amazon. It's on Audible. I, I read it at a, at a studio in Nashville. So it's... Oh, dude. You should have told me it was on Audible, man. I would have listened to it by now. It's on Audible. <laughs> you don't want to hear me talk. <laughs> oh, I do. I, that's why we had you on. That's why we had you on. I had this thing called the Best Life Movement, which is a nonprofit organization literally aimed at, a, at getting a movement of people who want to live their best lives. It, it, it's not, there's not a commercial element to it. It's all about genuinely getting a, a, a movement going. And it, we're getting some real motive, momentum on it. I'm pretty happy with it. And people can find out about that on your website? On my or? website. Okay. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure. I hope that people listening feel motivated and empowered to go out and live their best life and, and start small, but make changes today that are going to get you on that track and get you on that path. And Brett, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for coming on the show and uh, we'll definitely have you on again. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Uh, it's so interesting to me as I work with clients and individuals who are further along, further down the line you know, from where I'm at, and hearing their perspective and how it's changed over the years and their perspective specifically around their relationships, their health, their careers, um, and like Brett talked about, you know, finding that passion and going after it and kind of not settling and giving in and uh, he, he described how much of what he did was um, early on driven by the, the status quo of get a good job, make good money uh, versus, hey, find something that you really love doing or go out and really make an impact uh, somewhere. And so I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I hope it gave you some ideas of how you can live maybe a little bit more of, of a fulfilling life and maybe even more on your own terms. Now, don't take any of this to mean that I'm saying, hey, go quit your job, uh, leave your family, any of that. It's all about understanding what truly is important to you. And like he said, what are your priorities? And then starting to work a, a bit by bit, a step by step, you know, a little bit at a time to where you're starting to live more in alignment with those areas that are most important to you. So thanks again for listening. If you love this episode, please like it, share it. Um, go over to iTunes, leave a comment. Uh, that helps us get better. It also helps us get our, our message out and uh, spreading the, the Greer method. So thanks again for listening. We will catch you next time.